Welcome to Investing for Ocean Impact, the podcast providing the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Hef. This is the season's final episode, and I had the great pleasure to talk with leading figures in the climate and conservation world about how we're going to embrace these new ocean finance opportunities. Over the past nine episodes, we've seen that investable projects, blue investment funds and blue bonds are emerging rapidly. Impact investors, institutional investors, as well as companies show big interest to put money into nature-based solutions. But are we going in the right direction? And how can we further accelerate finance into coastal and marine nature-based solution to achieve our ultimate goal of conserving our ocean? Coming up later, I'm speaking to the president of the IUCN, Razan Al-Mubarak, Luxembourg's Minister for the Environment, Carol Dischbuch, and your special presidential envoy for climate, John Kerry. But first, we're discussing the Green Climate Fund, the centerpiece of the UN's climate finance efforts. Why and how is it supporting blue nature-based solutions globally? I'm joined by the GCF Executive Director, Yannick Lemarek. Hi, Doretti. Very nice to be here. So I wanted to start asking about what is the role of the Green Climate Fund in ocean and climate efforts today? Well, it's a very good question. Why is the Green Climate Fund so interested in the blue economy? For me, one of the greatest breakthroughs in terms of uh, environmental thinking over the past couple of years has been the recognition that uh, ecosystem deterioration, uh, climate change, growing inequality, food insecurity were different uh, dimensions of the same uh, crisis. And actually protecting our oceans can be critical in terms of uh, biodiversity conservation, food security, and uh, climate change uh, risk uh, mitigation. The deterioration of the ocean is a consequence and a cause of climate change. But also as important, the conservation of the ocean is a solution to climate change. And so, for example... uh, The high-level panel on the sustainable uh, ocean economy came to the conclusion that a few initiatives could capture uh, up to 4 gigatons of carbon dioxide by 2030 annually and up to 11 gigatons by 2050. This is almost a quarter of the emission gap right now in order to remain under 1.5 degrees Celsius. And uh, the initiatives are actually very close to the initiative that the Green Climate Fund has been designed to support. We are speaking about uh, promoting uh, ocean-based renewable energy technologies. We are promoting about ocean-based sustainable transport. We are speaking about uh, conserving coastal and marine ecosystem and promoting nature-based solution, ecosystem-based approaches to address climate change is another critical priority of uh, GCF. And uh, we are also speaking about uh, sustainable livelihoods such as sustainable agriculture, mariculture, and uh, uh, territory shift, which is also another priority of GCF. So when we look at the investment required to 
preserve coastal and marine ecosystem, to preserve the livelihood of almost a billion people. And it's almost exactly the same investment that you need to advert catastrophic climate change. And if you are interested, I could give you a couple of examples of what we do in practice. Indeed, please, yeah. And specifically also on the, the nature-based solution side, if you have an example or two, that would be terrific. I will give two examples on nature-based solution in such a case. The first one is uh, to basically demonstrate that investing in coastal and marine ecosystem is a genuine investment. Here you are speaking about something that everybody going to a bank should feel free about requesting from one's banker. I want my money, my savings to be invested in coastal and marine ecosystems. This uh, high-level panel on the sustainable ocean economy that I've already mentioned came to the conclusion that investing between two to three trillion dollars a year could basically uh, generate uh, eight to, uh, if memory is correct, eight to fifteen trillion dollars of benefits. But so we are speaking about socio-economic benefits, not financial benefits. And the problem is that if you want to catalyze private finance, you have to count in terms of financial benefits, not uh, socioeconomic benefit. And so our objective is to demonstrate that actually some of these critical activities can have an extremely attractive financial rate of return. It's not only good for society. And so uh, during COP26, we launched a project that had just been approved by our board. It's a $500 million private equity fund for coral reef management. And these private equity funds will basically invest in sustainable tourism, but also in sustainable mariculture, maybe kelp forest management, etc. So a number of different investment opportunities that could be explored. Now, People are used to private equity for energy nowadays. But they look at you today when you speak about coral reef, exactly the same way they were looking at me 30 years ago about renewable energy. So what we did in order to reassure institutional investors that it will not be reckless for them, we provided $125 million of first lost equity. If anything goes wrong, we are the first to lose our money. In order to mobilize three times this amount, $375 million of institutional equity and have half a billion dollars of equity fund. And after, if this fund invests in 10 to 20% of the total cost of each individual investment, you could potentially leverage anywhere between 2.5 to $5 billion. We have had similar ratio in the field of renewable energy. But much more important is that suddenly we have created a new asset class. We will have demonstrated that investing in coral reef management is a genuine investment. So that is one type of project. I would like to take a second type of projects that put further emphasis on marine protected areas and community engagement. And there we are uh, co-financing a project uh, with uh, KFW for uh, the Blue Fund. The first project was with Pegasus. And the Blue Fund basically provide uh, some grant to uh, civil society organization for them to support countries in establishing marine protected areas and ensuring these marine protected areas not uh, become an obstacle for local communities to access resources. 
and will uh, result into a dramatic increase in equality and justice. Great. Thank you for that. Well, sticking a bit with, with the private sector side, what else needs to happen to leverage this private uh, investment into nature-based solutions? Because you mentioned there is still sort of some gaps and some looks that uh, yourself and others are receiving when talking about this topic. What further needs to happen in terms of leverage? The reason why creating a new asset class is important is because you have created a new market. Ultimately, we need to uh, create or transform green markets. And uh, we need to basically change uh, the uh, risk-reward profile of every single financial decision. And so the Green Climate Fund has follow, is following a four-pronged approach to create green markets. And the first one is that uh, we support efforts from developing countries in putting in place a conducive uh, policy environment in order to scale up climate action. And it's up to the countries to decide what does it mean a conducive environment. And this can be developing strategies, such as, for example, long-term strategies for carbon or strategies for coastal and marine ecosystem management. It can be developing new policies, developing the capacity of institutions. The second prong is basically to accelerate innovation. The days where technology were to be transferred from the north to the south are over. And uh, we have seen with digital technologies that uh, developing countries have often leapfrogged uh, several stages of uh, industrial development. And uh, we simply do not have the luxury of uh, not capitalizing on every single innovative mind that we have in the world. And a large part of the innovation to avoid catastrophic climate change will come from developing countries. The third prong is that once these entrepreneurs have a workable solution, how do we bring it to commercial scale? And for that, what we do is that we blend our resources with the resources of uh, private sector in order to de-risk the first investment that will basically establish a commercial track record for this new climate solution. For example, the Coral Reef uh, uh, Fund is a typical example of blended finance. And why is a commercial uh, track record so important? It's because bankers cannot deal with uncertainty. They can deal with risk, not uncertainty. Once you have a commercial track record, they can calculate risk. And therefore, you can you have basically a solution that every single financial institutions can finance. And so the four prong is to work uh, with uh, domestic uh, financial institutions, public and private, to be able to or originate this kind of projects and finance them. So we move from the strategic vision the policy support that will enable a new ID to germinate to the moment where uh, your entire uh, domestic uh, financial systems can uh, finance a widespread adoption of this new climate solution. And that's what we need to do. We need to create markets and we need to create them fast. And to speaking to your collaboration with other partners, you have a stronger relationship now with the Global Environment Facility. Can you tell us a little bit about that collaboration and how will that help us advance some of the items that you already mentioned? But I think it's a direct result of this recognition that uh, the uh, ecosystem uh, de uh, degradations, climate change, gr growing inequality, food insecurity were part of uh, the same uh, crisis. And uh, the Global Environment Facility and the Green Climate Fund have gigantic synergies. First, in terms of expertise, because the uh, GEF has a 
gigantic expertise in terms of ecosystem-based approaches that they have gained over the past uh, uh, almost 30 years of uh, operation that is worth gold to uh, GCF. At the same time, because GCF is very much about supporting transformative change, very large-scale action, the type of activities that where you do not need a consultant to tell you whether or not you have succeeded. There, GCF has developed in terms of climate impact and in terms of climate financial structuring, another expertise that is very complementary. You bring the two funds together, you can think about completely novel solution. And for example, GCF can pilot an approach and us, we can scale it up. Or we can co-create together a co-investment platform and bring plenty of other partners. The two funds work very much as hub of the climate finance architecture. And so if we bring all our partners on board, we can end up with completely unprecedented coalitions. And then also maybe venturing off into the bigger ocean, the high seas. Financing here is a very big question. Can we look at examples like the GCF to see what could work in the high seas? First, uh, it's a very, very valid uh, topic of concentration because uh, 50% of uh, the earth surface is beyond national jurisdiction. How do we ensure that we can also establish uh, marine protected areas uh, in areas beyond national jurisdiction? How can we ensure that uh, we manage sustainably all our fishery adiotic reserves? The... Uh, GCF right now is working with uh, a number of countries about uh, several global transformative platforms where you do not need to have every single country together, but if you have a critical mass, you could achieve a global result. And for example, uh, for marine protected areas, there is a, a huge body of academic work on how different type of uh, fee systems could be uh, put in place. Right now, we have only 7% of uh, the uh, oceans that are covered by uh, marine protected areas and only 2-3% where it's highly protected. We know that uh, if we could bring it to 30% as, uh, as it's being advocated by the biodiversity community, we will, uh, we will actually, by 2050, dramatically increase the fish stock. How can we make sure that those who will benefit from this increase of fresh stock can contribute to the financing of these marine protected areas? For me, it's certainly one of the most exciting areas of research right now. At the level of the Green Climate Fund, as part of our commitment to supporting innovation, we will definitely be there in order to support innovative financing instruments for areas beyond national jurisdictions. We have 200 partners. We will be listening to their initiative and we will be trying to support their vision. Over the past three years, I myself have had the privilege of working for an initiative called the Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility to support and leverage funding for Blue Nature-based solutions. So now I want to ask, what is the role of us, the BNCFF, and other similar efforts in the fast-moving new world of ocean finance? Here to explain is Carol Dischbuch, Luxembourg's Minister for Environment, Climate and Sustainable Development, and a donor to the BNCFF. Good morning, Dorothy. And alongside her is Razan Al-Mubarak, 
newly elected president of IUCN, the host organization of the BNCFF. Hello and thank you, Dorothy. And hello, Minister. So I wanted to start with you, um, President Al-Mubarak. You were elected ICN president in late 2021. And in your acceptance speech, you talked about how we need to reignite the spirit of innovation. What did you mean exactly? And how can we translate that to ocean conservation and financing ocean conservation? Yeah, I've been often asked uh, this question, and I, almo- I, I always um, relate to it in sort of three points. The first point of innovation is really about imagination. Um, so how do we reimagine conservation? As we know sometimes too well, conservation is too often done on the fringes of the society. We need to open it up, open it up to more actors from across uh, disciplines, and we need to open it up uh, fast, including opening up to new doorways, new economic doorways. There are a new generation of startups and social uh, enterprises that are addressing some of the most pressing environmental and societal challenges. The other point that I wanted to mention is something that IUCN very much addresses, which is the issue of investing in nature-based solutions. But what's important is that, you know, if not right, done right, very similar to what happened in the sort of carbon credit markets, you know, we need to do uh, NBS or nature-based solutions correctly. We need to ensure that um, projects on the ground are supported. We need to invest in them. And that is why I'd like to really highlight the IUCN's global standard for nature-based solutions. It's so crucial that we recognize and understand what NBS actually are, and therefore help actors around the world to invest in those um, high-impact, high-quality, measured and verified projects uh, on the ground. Minister Dishbu, Luxembourg is a small landlocked country, yet you supported, for example, the launch of the Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility about three years back. Why are you so interested in nature-based solutions and specifically also in the coastal and marine space? Even if Luxembourg is a landlocked country, I think we have a responsibility that we share with all the other countries if it comes to the protection of the planet, especially also to the protection of the oceans. Second thing is really that we have to combine climate adaptation and to do this via nature-based uh, solutions in order to really combine all those positive effects. A third point is that Luxembourg is the second largest uh, fund center globally. So we have an expertise and we can do big steps together with the finance sector here in Luxembourg in order to have a greater impact. And we have also the largest green exchange here in Luxembourg. So our stock exchange already plays a crucial role. But we decided all together, 2015, in Paris, it's really to redirect financial flows to climate neutrality. And I think personally that we only can do this if we involve all actors, if we are able to connect those who really work on ocean protection with those who have the financial knowledge. And there I see really a a crucial role. So I think even if we have no coastal areas, we see 
already know the impact, but we also see the opportunity to protect coastal areas, to work with IUCN and all the partners outside in order to scale the money we need. Because if you look at international climate finance and the promises we do, this is only a small part. So that's why we really need new financial models, more than just public monies. We need funds of funds structure in order to uh, make the private sector able to invest and to reduce risks. And a bit more specifically on the BNCFF, when we came to you and colleagues about three years ago, it was still a rather newer endeavor. What have you seen grow in the blue finance space and a role of the BNCFF? Uh, so first of all, we need to accelerate the investment in nature-based solutions. And that was the idea behind to get the knowledge, to get the people uh, together and to get a lot of projects that will be able to run and then reducing the risk. So by supporting the Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility, Luxembourg helps prepare the supply side for ocean investing to reduce the costs and hopefully risks for developers and investors alike. President Al-Mubarak, back to you. Is this the kind of bold approach that you were talking about earlier on as well? Absolutely. And thank you for this question. Essentially, you know, financing is an important part of the narrative. You know, I've been told and we've all heard that visions or goals without implementation is simply a hallucination. And so, you know, financing is an important part of, of this narrative. But how do we finance? You know, what's also critical is that we think about how do we make sure that financing can reach the communities and organizations that will have to implement these nature-based solutions. So many instances, um, we speak at the global scale, which is extremely important because biodiversity loss and climate change is certainly global challenges. But a lot of the solutions, particularly on the protection of nature, are happening locally. So what we need to ensure is when we design these financial systems, that these financial systems consider the trickling of financing to the local communities so that they can act on the ground. The other point that I wanted to say is we talk about financing, we talk about needed and required money, but the question is how much is it? So many people perhaps get daunted by this is money that the community, that the global community cannot invest in because it's simply too much. But when you sit down and you research and you speak to institutions like the IUCN, we know what it is. It's only 1% of global GDP. In the last uh, two years, we were able to move approximately 15% of GDP to address the COVID challenge. Addressing the nature challenge requires 1% of GDP. The other thing is to also challenge what that means. There is perhaps a, a perception, uh, Minister and Dorothy, that moving money will take away from people's quality of life. We're not suggesting that. We're saying that the money is there and this money will not be thrown away. It will actually be invested in needed natural infrastructure that will improve and enhance our quality of life. So how do we do this? We need to empower local communities. We really need to empower local NGOs. And this is where I'd like to also highlight the initiative 
of the Great Blue Wall. Together with countries from the Western Indian Ocean region, these types of initiatives are crucial. It was included in the Marseille Manifesto as one of the 10 action commitments of the Congress. It was launched in Glasgow last year during the COP26, and it is deliberately designed to accelerate and scale up ocean conservation actions and the blue economy development by aiming at unlocking the level of political and financial leadership required to reverse this trend. So absolutely, we need a political climate that will address these challenges of climate change and biodiversity. We need to ignite this type of multilateralism that can breathe hope in addressing both the biodiversity and climate change crisis. I fully agree with what President Rosan has just said, because it's really, if you look at climate adaptation, especially resilience, and also biodiversity protection and ocean protections, really we have not only to work with local people, and empower them, we can also learn from local and indigenous peoples. Because nature-based solutions is really something where we can create, I would say, triple win. So for me, it's not a question if the money is there. The question is how fast will we be able to reorient the money that's there to take away the harmful subsidies, to change consumption and production uh, systems, to get them more sustainable and to create better living quality for people and to build up together with them resilience, especially also if it comes to uh, coastal areas. So uh, we made the experience, for instance, in Luxembourg by restoration rivers, that you protect the people from flooding. And you also have not only biodiversity, it's also cheaper in the end, because it's not investing into grey infrastructure, but investing into cheaper nature-based solutions. And Luxembourg has been for years now trying to be at the front runner side if it comes um, to innovation. And I think that's what we started with. Because if you go from the thinking that it's not a question if the money is there, it's the question how we attract more private actors, how fast we will be able to have more people on board. And I can also mention maybe the Luxembourg EIB climate finance platform, which is a de-risking mechanism for private investments. And we have some famous examples like the Land Regulation Neutrality Fund that provides patient long-term finance and technical assistance for land use transformation, shifting the trend from land degradation and on sustainable land use to land rehabilitation and sustainable land use. So we don't only do it on the ocean side, but really having a holistic approach to use nature to protect people and thus also help us prevent our planet to be destroyed because uh, we only can live on a healthy planet. So I think it's really to combine the action of all the actors to de-risk and to show that it is possible because I think the president also mentioned the solutions are there. We all know what we need to do. Now it's a question about taking bold decisions, going in the same direction as politicians, economic actors, and also civil society actors like the NGO sector and listen to science. So it's the combination of all those actors that will make the acceleration that we need, because if we really look at the facts, 
We are not yet there. Now we have to get everyone on board. Beautifully said. You know, you've just mentioned that, you know, we understand uh, now globally that it is economically feasible to address both the climate change and the biodiversity challenge. We know that by addressing it in the right way, we are empowering local communities. We also know that we could be opening up new business pathways for new innovative business ideas that, you know what, are being led by this incredible youth uh, movement. What is required is the acceleration. And perhaps what I can talk is we need to make sure that we emotionally connect to this narrative. Science is certainly speaks volumes, but to get all the various actors on board, we need to perhaps emotionally connect with the importance of biodiversity, the bees, uh, the corals, the Amazon, that will drive us to act uh, quickly and move from this general hopelessness of climate despair, of biodiversity despair, into a new era where we simply believe that, as you said, it is simple and it can be done. Truly, it can be done, and there are clear next steps ahead, this year, in 2022, that will ensure we're getting there. My final guest in this episode is the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry. Glad to be with you. Thank you. As Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, how do you view the growing attention that is finally giving to ocean topics in the UNFCCC, the Global Climate Convention? I view the uh, UNFCCC embrace of climate and the link to ocean as absolutely essential. I mean, for years, some of us have been trying to remind people that you really shouldn't separate it. You cannot solve the problems of the ocean, and there are many and big ones, without dealing with climate, because that means reducing the pollution that goes into the oceans. And you can't solve the problem of climate without embracing the ocean as, as, a, as part of that. Indeed. And nature-based solutions are a big part of that. Is this way of thinking being integrated into the discussions of the UNFCCC, but also other international fora? It is increasingly. And this year, obviously, there are major set. I mean, we've had the One Ocean Conference in France that I just attended, that President Macron hosted. We have the Monaco Blue Initiative. And then uh, we will have the United States and Palau will co-host uh, the Our Oceans Conference in Palau. And then we go on from there to June to the Ocean Conference of the United Nations. So really, there's a tremendous, this could be the year of the ocean. It could be the year of the integration of ocean with climate uh, solutions. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, we have big, big lifting to do. And what kind of initiatives do you think we need to catalyze investments in this space? I think the most significant thing that we need to achieve now as an initiative is the full embrace on a global basis of what we call the 30 by 30, that 30% 30 of the ocean is going to be set aside for conservation and preservation protection by 2030. It's doable. And if countries will do that, we really have a chance of restoring fish stocks and of creating an awareness that there is a structure regarding the oceans, which can actually uh, help to fix them, help to bring them back, if you will. 
Uh, I'll give you an example. The too much money chasing too few fish. There are massive fleets of fishing vessels which go out on the ocean and there are certain nations which sponsor these fleets and know they're out there and they violate the EEZs, the economic zones of countries which are not supposed to be penetrated unless given permission. They fish the high seas with illegal fishing gear that has been outlawed by the United Nations like drift nets. These factory ships will process those fish right there on the ship. Then they send them off to these 747s that are waiting at an airport to fly them to the marketplace, one country or another. Well, the result is that blue tuna is, is now at about 5% of its original stock. And it's not survival. It's not a sustainable fishery. So unless we get practices put in place that are going to build sustainability, we could wipe out whole species of fish. People need to remember it is an ecosystem. It's a living system. And we're in the process of killing it in various ways in various parts of the world. That has to stop. Indeed. And, and you mentioned the 30 by 30 as an, a high goal being discussed at the moment. Again, trying to see how we can bring government and, and private sector or different type of finance together. Do you see also this happening in the 30 by 30 space? Yes. I mean, I think that is the key. There are, there are some really good acting corporations around. And some of the um, fish product companies are well aware that if they don't inculcate in people a culture of sustainability and preservation, they're going to be out of business. So there's a lot of reason for people to try to strive for sustainability. The problem is you have these uh, scavengers, these predator people who are out there just trying to make the extra buck and they don't really care about the system and they'll take it for what it's worth right now. That's a danger. One of the things we don't have is we have, we've created many marine protected areas. The problem is no nation has coordinated or put up enough money to be able to have the kind of full measure enforcement that you need. So you have a lot of illegal, unreported, unregulated, IUU it's called, fishing and so forth, practices that take place. We've got to up enforcement on a global basis. That can be done. But unless we do it, uh, we have less of a chance, obviously, of succeeding on protecting this 30 by 30. Switching back a bit to the climate side, at the Ocean Wealth Summit, you said that resolving climate change is not a matter of whether we can do it, but whether we decide to do it. Have we decided to do it? A lot of people have. A lot of people haven't. I gave a speech in Cairo in which I really tried to lay out where we are with respect to Glasgow, which really did advance the ball. People should feel good about Glasgow. Glasgow had a full recognition by all countries that we need to try to keep 1.5 degrees as the limit of the warming of the planet. And 90% of the warming of the planet goes into the ocean. So here again, you have the connection of climate and ocean very directly. So we need to limit that warming because it's changing the chemistry of the ocean in some ways that we're aware of, and in some ways we don't even know what the outcome's going to be. But precaution would say to you, knowing 
the bad things that are happening, you, you really want to not have irreversibility enter into the equation. And more and more scientists are telling us now that some of the impacts of what we've done, perhaps the Arctic melting, perhaps the Antarctic melting, perhaps the coral reefs, these are some of the tipping points that they refer to that we may well have passed the line. So, you know, there's a reason for people to translate what should be an appropriate level of alarm that comes from the awareness of these interconnections that we're starting to change our behavior. Regrettably, not enough is happening on that score. So we're currently, well, if you took every promise that was made in Glasgow and you factor that out for the next 30 years, as the, I, as the International Energy Agency did, they took all of what was promised, put it in the modeling and came up with a, with a result. And the result is amazing that by 2050, if we do everything we said we'd do, we would have held the Earth's temperature rise to 1.8 degrees. Now that's with only 65% of global economic effort going into the positive side of trying to do this. 35% is still not committed to keep the 1.5 degrees alive. So you've got countries, China, India, Russia, uh, Indonesia, others, they wanna move, they don't have the money for the technology. They don't have the money to transition out of coal. So they're in a very tough place. The largest economies of the world need to step up and help those countries to be able to make the transition. And that's how we win this battle for the oceans and the climate together. So I'm encouraged by what we could do, but more people have to decide they really want to do it and they're ready to do what we need to do to do it. And the upside we are talking about getting rid of pollution. It amazes me that people are so indifferent at times. This is pollution. It kills 10 million people a year on the planet today. So we should be moving very rapidly to try to deal with this. And the upside, as I said, is more jobs, clean jobs, a cleaner planet, a healthier planet, a safer planet. And you look at what's happening with Russia and gas in Europe today, and you should say to yourself, wow, the way to solve the problem is move more rapidly to a better, cleaner, more virtuous grid for our power, for our heating, for our transportation. We can do this. And we've just got to summon the willpower to get it done. Looking at the, the serious ge geopolitical issues we have at the moment, how do we keep the eye on the ball, which means ocean and climate action in this case? Well, You and I are here talking about it today. That's how we keep the eye on the ball. We have to, we can't. What's happening in Ukraine is grotesque, horrendous. It, it violates every sensibility that people have around the world with the exception of Vladimir Putin and, and some of his cronies and the people around him. But we have to stay focused on this because it's all connected. It's about life choices. It's about how we approach each other. It's about how we're going to behave on this planet. And I think President Putin and Russia have sown the seeds of very, very difficult times for themselves going forward. The world is responding in a remarkable, appropriate way to the horrors of what we're seeing coming out of Ukraine. And hopefully that will even galvanize more people to recognize that that kind of attitude, that destructive, selfish, dangerous attitude 
is really uh, what some of the people on the high seas are engaged in. And I think that uh, hopefully this will help concentrate the mind and people will recognize that this is not completely disconnected in the choices that we make as human beings. So we've got to keep moving ahead. What is happening in Ukraine is life and death, but what is happening in the ocean and to the planet is also life and death. And there are people dying all around the planet because of extreme heat, because of lack of food, because of the problems of having to move now from where they used to live to another place because they can't live there anymore because they can't produce food anymore or the water's disappearing uh, and so forth. The challenge could not be more clear. And I think uh, you and others are doing a great job of keeping people focused on it. A big thank you to my guests this week, Yannick Lemarek, Razan Al-Mubarak, Minister Carol Dishpur and Secretary John Kerry. And thank you as well to the UBS Optimist Foundation for funding this season of the podcast. This has been the last episode of season one. I hope you've enjoyed and been inspired by our conversation. Make sure that you subscribe because we're already working on season two, so stay tuned. Investing for Ocean Impact is a fresh air production on behalf of IUCN's Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility. It was produced by Phil Sansom with production assistance from Michelle Burnett. For more information on IUCN's Blue Finance work, please visit our website, bluenaturalcapital.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Dorothy Hare.